Welcome to the latest episode of Ribcast, the official podcast of the Chestwall Injury Society. I'm Matthew Dahl. On this episode, I have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Brian Kim about his experience starting a program managing complex chest wall injuries. We also discuss approaches for some of the most commonly encountered injuries. I hope that you find this episode informative. We're here today with Dr. Brian Kim. Uh, Brian, thank you for joining us. Take a second to introduce yourself. Sure. Um, I'm Brian Kim. I'm the uh medical director of the adult trauma program here at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, uh, Minnesota, and um, happy uh, to be a part of uh, this program and membership in the uh, chest wall uh, uh, injury society. Um, this is a wonderful opportunity to speak with our membership and uh, hopefully reach out beyond our membership to um, discuss the ins and outs of of chest wall reconstruction. So uh, really my pleasure. Well, that's great. Thank you. Um, it's really our pleasure to have you here and uh, we're really interested to talk about a couple different topics today. Um, the first one that I thought maybe you could uh, tell us about is a little bit about how you got an interest in and um, kind of developed a program to start fixing complex chest wall injuries. Sure. So I think I, I came around at the right time. Um, it was really during my fellowship at uh, Vanderbilt um, in uh, 2006 <clears throat> when um, uh, Dr. Jose Diaz um, was propagating the practice there. And uh, it was really nice to have an unbiased eye to the practice and, and the patients. And... <clears throat> As most people know, the, the literature's um, becoming more robust, but uh, back then really um, was based on a lot of historical data. Um, it, it was interesting to really just be at the bedside and see how these patients did. And again, with an unbiased eye, uh, being participant in their, in, in their care after injury, pre-op, and then see the resultant uh, outcome post-op, it was really eye-opening for me and uh, demonstrated to me that we certainly can do better with regard to management of chest wall injury and uh, reconstruction and, and operation is, should be a part of the armamentarium. Um, so when I came back uh, to Mayo uh, on staff two years later, um, I really made it my, my mission to bring the, this practice back. And, and um, we are a fairly traditional, and when I say traditional, um, really kind of old school um, when it comes to the management of chest wall reconstruction, or excuse me, chest wall injury. And uh, I knew that uh, uh, the traditional teaching from my residency here. So there was a lot of, um, how to say this, debate and discussion about the practice and, and, uh, um, you know, it was, it was really kind of seen as a, something that was advertised in the glossy, uh, journals. It was a, a challenge to, to bring the practice back because, um, it was, it was not seen as a, a part of the, the algorithm to, to management of chest wall injury. And, um, I think your your word is exactly right. There was skepticism to this uh, practice, and um, it, it took really, uh, in a similar fashion to how I was convinced, it, it took uh, uh, really some some patient outcomes um, and and following these patients over a course of time for my partners to see that there was a, a role. So tell me a little bit more about that. You come back as a junior faculty member at a prestigious institution, uh, and you're trying to convince people that this is the way to go. How do you how do you do that? What are the conversations like? How do you choose your cases early on to set yourself up for success in that scenario? 
Right. Well, I had the, the great benefit of um, having done residency here. So I was a known entity to, um, to my partners. Um, uh, I think with that in mind, I, I had some foundation with them um, and I wasn't just the, the new guy, so to speak. So starting from that point, uh, bringing a, a new practice back uh, still w- with some skepticism and, and uh, uh, it, it took a lot of education, um, a lot of uh, uh, healthy debate, uh, dodging some tomatoes uh, at conferences <laughs> and uh, going over the literature and discussing uh, matters not only with, with my partners, but um, the residents, the respiratory therapists, the ICU nurses, the floor nurses, um, the uh, charge nurses, the operating room staff, um, the uh, individuals who control the um, uh, intake of equipment in our operating rooms, um, uh, getting uh, uh, checked off in terms of uh, um, procedural codes. Um, so it, it, it took some doing. Um, anesthesia as well, um, doing thoracic cases in our institution in a general school was um, a bit rare prior to this practice. So sure. that, that, that took some doing um, and finding, finding anesthesiologists in, in the general surgery hall that had comfort with, uh, with management of, of uh, the anesthetic and, you know, dual lumen tubes, et cetera, um, which was a, a definite change in the tenor of our practice. So a lot of discussion. Um, I, I think as you, you ask early patient selection, um, not really different than late patient selection, you know, we're, we're, we're um, but, but certainly uh, there's a proven ground and um, taking on so-called fringe uh, patients for indications early on uh, is uh, you know, ill-advised. You, you, you certainly want to set yourself up and your patients up for success. Um, so demonstrating uh, clear uh, benefit, um, admittedly, is something that I did um, and uh, had the good fortune of, of having that occur uh, for the first um, number of cases uh, and, and onward. Uh, uh, but really, early on, it's, it's, it's a key element. Absolutely. What did you do to go about uh, building institutional support for the patients, not only in the operating room, but before and after? Did you develop a protocol for the type of patients you'd be uh, approaching with this? Did you develop protocols for uh, pre and post operative? Or is this something that you just managed on a case by case basis? Yeah, um, all of that. Um, so Yes, uh, practice management guidelines were developed. Um, I, I, I wrote those for, for the management of uh, uh, injured uh, patients with uh, chest wall injury, um, rib fractures. Uh, the, the guideline for, um, and it's just that, a, a guideline as opposed to a protocol for um, who we would see as uh, uh, an ind- indication for operation. Um, I failed to mention, and it's a, it's a big, um, big mess here, discussion with the trauma advanced practitioners with, who are just a, an absolute um, uh, workforce for our, our group, um, getting them onboarded uh, with the management of these patients and identification of, of these patients early was key. And they, they're really the, the boots on the ground in our center uh, for our trauma patients. So aligning myself with, with those uh, individuals and, and uh, uh, they would message me or email me um, when there was a, a patient that may have an indication. And so uh, these patients would, would be screened by them um, and I'd have a discussion with uh, the advanced practitioners or my partners um, about these patients and, and uh, rule them in or rule them out. Um, so having the guideline is one thing, but, uh, having, having one, one or two, uh, uh, individuals in the institution that are comfortable, 
uh, with the practice and can screen these individuals uh, without bias is is key and the, the patient selection early is is key but it's it's really the identification of the patients as early as possible as, as the literature and, and just anecdote would would speak to um, as far as the institution is concerned the thoracic surgeons I, I have a good relationship with uh, uh, here and um, found myself very early on bouncing some of the cases off of them and letting them know that I was doing the, doing this practice. And uh, it's fortunate in this institution that uh, the thoracic surgeons are happy to defer the management of uh, chest wall reconstruction to the trauma group. So I, I often to this day get uh, complex chest wall uh, reconstruction referrals to me from the thoracic group. So I, I think it's a great working relationship there. Yeah, that's really nice. I definitely see what you're talking about with regard to identifying patients early. I'm coming from an institution where we have a couple surgeons who are comfortable repairing rib fractures. Um, but if they're not on, it can be hard to make sure that we're abreast of uh, the patients who might benefit from uh, operative management just because people don't think about it. Right, right, absolutely. And that's where I think the, the key is is getting um, getting the resident cadre uh, and, and uh, the advanced practitioners in this center um, was really clutch. And having these individuals who have an eye to to this without bias, and, and that 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 was really the key. Is here's the here's the guideline, and do they meet these criteria? And um, it was simply a, a really a checkbox. Uh, way of looking at at this issue, and um, of course, there there are nuances, but uh, uh, that that led to a, a large top of the funnel. Uh, whereas, you know, uh, some of the individuals in, in in the group early on may have uh, just kind of done it the quote unquote old way and, and uh, not even thought about it. All right, so you're early on, you've built your institutional support, you've got support of the trauma team on the ground, your partners are letting you do this and watching what you're doing, uh, and you're starting to have some success. What is the transition then from being the only person doing this to starting to bring some other people uh, into that group of, of operative managers of chest trauma? Yeah. Boy, this is, it, it's a dynamic process as uh um, anyone in a practice can can appreciate managing the personalities in the group is is uh, something that uh, clearly is is variable per per center and per per division. Um, I had the good fortune of having uh, a few individuals that are aggressive operators uh, that are partners, and uh, uh, so one of those was. Uh, uh, the current division um, uh, chief um, of our group, and he he's somebody that uh, was quite skeptical um, at first, and uh, admittedly was a kind of a luddite to to chest wall reconstruction, and and he started uh, poking his head in and uh, seeing what I was doing, and obviously would be following these patients closely uh, as well, and had the crossover caring for some of these folks. Um, in the ICU pre-op and seeing how they did post-operatively and really was convinced in that fashion. And uh, again, that just happened to be uh, somebody who had a, a strong um, interest in, in, frankly, operating. And, and uh, it, it was really a trickle-down effect after that. Um, uh, an additional individual was in his fellowship, um, his critical care fellowship, and um, came on staff for a few years, and so having him um, operate with me and then come on staff, uh, young, aggressive, um, uh, loved operating, so that was an early um, and easy onboarding uh, process there. Um, but I think it really boils down to understanding the personalities um, and tendencies uh, within your group, and managing those those personalities, and and um, of course, the, for the same reasons that uh, 
patient selection is key. Uh, so is the, you know, your partners in, in operating. You, you want to basically be able to train those that are trainable. I guess what I'm gathering from what you're saying now is you started off developing a subgroup of people who are comfortable doing this. Um, in your mind, uh, would, is it ideal that everyone is in a group is comfortable doing this? Or do you think that what you need is a, is a subgroup of your trauma group that's comfortable doing it? I think it depends on the size of the group. Um, we have a, we have a very large group and, um, everyone has their practice, uh, niches, whether it be operative or, or not for the, for the simple fact of, um, technical alignment and, uh, assuring that there's, um, little variance in the, the technical, not only the technical aspects, but the decision-making, um, probably more importantly, uh, regarding who gets an operation and who does not get an operation. Sure. Uh, I think having this, the smaller subgroup has worked well in our, in our division. And when I say smaller group, I'm, I'm, um, I'm thinking of about five individuals who have been doing it for the last nine or 10 years in our, in our group. And we have a very large group. So obviously it's really contingent on how big, one's division is and um, how much uh, how much training uh, is involved and um, how busy the, the trauma center is. Sure. What about the process of um, credentialing and training established surgeons who may be interested in getting into this practice? That's a great question. I think um, uh, not to, to go too tangential, but uh, we've we've run into this issue with um, with the advent of Raboa and, and bringing that pra- trying to bring that practice into our group um, now, and and so it, it's a bit of a mirror image to uh, ten years ago. Um, I, I had the, again good fortune of um, being in training as a as a critical care and trauma fellow. Uh, and learning this technique uh, during that time, and and I don't know that I've mastered anything at this point, but definitely uh, understanding the nuances of the technique and getting more and more challenging cases has been uh, the norm as of late. Getting um, individuals onboarded with uh, varying degrees of technical um, prowess. Uh, duration in, in practice, uh, I think is, is key, uh, because there are things that I didn't think about, uh, very early on that, that some of my senior partners just out of curiosity and, um, sound advice, uh, would bring to attention and that, that helped advance the practice, um, uh, pretty quickly. Um, so having, I, I think having a, a spectrum of individuals with varying experiences, and, and putting this, um, not only the technical aspects of the procedure in front of them, but also the, the, the decision-making is, is key and having it questioned. Um, there was no formal credentialing process. It, it really was uh, contingent on the uh, comfort level of, of the um, individual surgeon, um, but we would double scrub for these cases early on. And um, for me, that was not only uh, oversight of the care of the patients and the decision-making, but also the technical performance of the operation. Um, and even now we will step into one another's operating rooms and, and just, uh, ping each other for ideas or approaches or go over CT scans uh, together. So it's, it's a very collaborative practice. That's great. This may or may not have been something you encountered, but do you have any advice, uh, for handling or managing or, convincing a true skeptic about this, someone who just won't be convinced? Hmm. Boy, that's a great question. Um, it really, uh, <laughs> I think it depends on the individual. Um, why is that getting to the root cause of why that individual is, is a skeptic? Is it because there isn't the randomized control uh, multi-institutional trial? Is it because uh, he or she has seen so many technical failures 
have uh, been plagued with infection or uh, for whatever reason um, or for another reason doesn't think it works and, and trying to isolate why it is that that individual um, is not uh, um, not a believer, but uh, not interested in, in, in seeing the other side. I think, yeah. I think we have to start there, start a, a conversation, a discussion and um, right. go, go from there uh, really is it, and I, I, uh, I welcome that um, debate because I, I think uh, now I've, I've had the Kool-Aid, but uh, I welcome that debate because I, I think that there's a, a clear role and it's not for every patient. Um, but uh, I think demonstrating to that individual um not only the literature-based successes, but, but the clinical, clinical successes the beds, at the bedside, I think is, it's hard to walk away from that. It's really hard when you, when you see a patient do well with this procedure um, and I, I really don't see how one could um, walk away from the next patient and, and not have that in the armamentarium. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Uh is seeing the clinical successes that has certainly been for me going through fellowship, uh, very, very compelling. Uh, and we've kind of had a similar, similar progression to what you described, you know, starting with very limited indications. And then as we see such profound success with those expanding those to more and more patients. Right. Right. And I, I really think that that is, that's the way to do it is hold on to things tightly, be conservative early on, demonstrate, uh, your successes. Um, it, it's certainly going to be a, a positive feedback loop for the the operative surgeon and the team uh, to include, you know, all the people that we discussed before: the the nursing staff, the respiratory therapists, your advanced practitioners, the residents, the the partners that you have, the anesthesiologist, certainly the patient and their families, um, and, and that will help propagate the practice. And then then you can have some creep with respect to uh, your indications. Um, and, uh, you know, building the, the cadre of, uh, surgeons and, and the group that can care for these patients. Um, it, it's certainly a lot easier when you're, you're, you're able to lift off and clear the treetops. Um, what do you tell the patients and their families, uh, early on as you're building this practice, um, and knowing that they're probably getting different opinions from different providers? Well, that's, that's a great question. Uh, I think some patients, um, that, no, speaking of uh, individuals who, you know, have clear indications, now that, that's to some debatable uh, and, and strongly argued, but let's say have clear indications for operation. Oftentimes these patients are um, really desirous of, of any sort of uh, uh, relief. And it, it seems pretty clear. Uh, it's hard to dial back 10, 10, 12 years, but uh, it seems pretty clear to me who needs the operation. Um, but I, I think my advice is just like any other um, novel or quote unquote innovative procedure, or some might say experimental procedure, is to be open about it and, and be um, uh, truly get an informed consent that um, some individuals believe that there's uh, uh, equipoise about, about the procedure. Um, my experience is that you may benefit from this and the main uh, areas that you would benefit would be uh, analgesia and uh, bone healing. Um, also, it, uh, it uh, uh, has a good chance of preventing a pneumonia. Um, you know, what, whatever the case may be. Sure. Uh, but I think that, yeah, the bottom line is, is be open and honest, know your technical limitations, um, know your, uh, outcomes going in. And, um, you know, it's, it's hard when, uh, one may not have a practice or experience to rely upon, uh, aside from, you know, a course or something of this variety. So, uh, engaging one of your senior partners, 
um, or vice versa. One of your junior partners in the early discussions is, is going to be key um, because a lot of it is, is experience and, and gauging, is this patient going to benefit? Well, I want to talk a little bit about uh, some of the technical aspects of doing these cases, but before we move on to that, is there anything else that uh, any closing remarks you'd have for people who are looking to set up a uh, practice managing complex chest wall injuries? It's, it's really the $10,000 question. Um, in order to generate more data, we need more surgeons doing this procedure and knowing about the procedure. Um, I think I would strongly advocate for those that are in academic uh, centers, engage the residents. They are, I mean, as, as, uh, as is said, I mean, they are our future and engaging these individuals um, in the process, in the, in the decision-making, in the review of these patients, in obviously the, the uh, operations and the aftercare of these patients. I think that is going to be the key to really propagating this practice, uh, the residents and fellows. Um, I've been delighted to see how uh, these individuals who have not been really scarred by uh, <laughs> their own biases or, or um, years of practice uh, understand why it is we do what we do. Of course, you have to work backwards uh, as well and, and engage uh, uh, individuals who have practice bias or uh, for, as, as you ask, some other reason why they don't believe this practice is of value. Sure. But uh, yeah, I think in an academic center um, where there are young learners and, and uh, trainees, um, it's great to engage them. Uh, it's, it's invigorating you're challenged by um, trying to explain why we do what we do. And I, I think it's, it's pretty easy to explain it. it, it it's, it's pretty, uh, pretty straightforward. Well, that's great. And I, as you described, have had the benefit of uh, learning to do this in fellowship. And I think as we see more and more people coming through training and coming out of training with this skill set, we'll just see the incidence of it, uh, of these operations and of this management increase dramatically. I hope so. I hope so. Well, kind of moving on to the um, second part of our discussion, uh, I thought maybe you'd take a minute and um, we could go through some of the approaches that you use for the complex chest wall injuries, um, kind of as a, as a primer for people looking to do their first few of these on their own uh, and talks a little bit about the pearls and pitfalls and uh, benefits of each approach. Well, we're... Um... I'll speak for uh, you know our practice here. We're a um, single incision <laughs> sort of a, a group. Um, I know others uh, will approach um, individual rib fractures in a step ladder type fashion. Uh, we typically make a single uh, thoracotomy uh, incision. We do a, a muscle splitting um, or sparing. Uh, technique. Um, I think a, a very helpful adjunct is a, a self-retaining retractor, um, one that uh, lands and elevates the scapula. Um, the 90-degree drill and driver is a very useful adjunct as well uh, for high subscapular fractures as well as far anterior and far posterior um, uh, fractures. Uh, that's really allowed a single incision to be utilized. Um, we use, uh, although not exactly a, a uh, technique, but we'll use um, lipo liposomal bipivacaine for uh, uh, intercostal nerve block at the end of cases. Um, and we have had a uh, evolving practice with regard to use of dual lumen tubes. Uh, I think there's been some shift into just going to uh, use of a single lumen tube just to expedite cases, frankly. And, and uh, those are, I guess, the, that's the general uh, view of, of our 
approach. Um, obviously, the, the fracture pattern and um, patient-specific issues uh, for positioning, um, we deal with those on a case-by-case basis. Sure. So let me throw some scenarios at you and see uh, kind of how you'd position the patient, where you'd make your incision, and um, how you'd approach some fractures, if that's all right. Sure, yeah. All right, so you've got a patient who uh, was crushed by a crushed in an MVC with a series of very posterior fractures between two and a half and four centimeters from the transverse processes uh, of, say, ribs five through eight. Posteriorly. Posteriorly, very posterior. Okay, um, five through eight posteriorly. Uh, that would be a, a standard uh, standard approach for us, which would be a um, uh, lateral decubitus, uh, posterior lateral thoracotomy, um, elevation of the scapula, um, and are the fractures uh, lateral to or underneath the paraspinous musculature? Uh, I was imagining them underneath the paraspinous muscles. Okay. Then uh, we would elevate the paraspinous uh, musculature, uh, set the fractures, and then standard plating uh, across them. Um, and I, I would envision uh, using the 90-degree uh, uh, drill and driver for, for those fractures, given the location. And, and um, we do not, as an aside, uh, typically use the intramedullary splints. Okay. So... Um, that, that's just been our, our practice. And again, with the uh, 90 uh, degree drill and driver equipment, we've been uh, very successful at reaching these so-called hard, hard to reach uh, fractures. We would measure out the, as you detail, measure out the distance and ensure that we have a landing zone on the uh, spine side of the, the fracture. Um, obviously bone quality and, and, uh, um, has much to do with, uh, uh, you know, the technical a- aspects of the operation as, as anything. How do you decide what is too posterior? I think um, it, it depends on the patient. I mean, some, some uh, thin, um, uh, low sub-Q fat uh, individuals with uh, not a lot of muscle bulk um, in the paraspinous region, um, you can really get, get pretty far back. It, it's hard for me to give you an exact number um, that, that makes a patient unapproachable. Sure. Um, uh, the bimodal um, or extreme uh, types of patients, you have a thin individual with not a lot of subcutaneous fat, uh, and the paraspinous musculature is, is um, relatively flat, um, one might say that this is a frail patient, but uh, uh, you can really lift that uh, and, and get a good bit of distance. I, I've landed uh, plates directly adjacent to the transverse process, and, and uh, obviously it also depends on what level you're, you're trying to land the, the plate at. In contrast, if you have a morbidly obese individual with a lot of subcutaneous fat and a very thick muscle belly and, and you're looking at rib three, um, two centimeters off the transverse process, it, it, that's going to be a challenge. So, yeah. um, I think it's, it's something where, uh, experience and taking a look at the CT scan, um, and the patient, uh, will, will be very telling. Do you, in the cases like this that I've done, Elevating that paraspinous muscle is always uh, difficult, but really important for getting the exposure you need. Um, what tips or tricks do you have for that process? I think um, the, the surgical basics, exposure and retraction are, are the, the key elements. Just be wary of the, the perforators there. Um, gentle retraction and uh, uh, trying to preserve that, that uh, tissue plane um, oftentimes as, as you probably have, uh, well seen, uh, the, 
the damage of the fracture will lead to a, a muscular hematoma um, or there's a fracture hematoma in the region or an early seroma. Um, so sometimes the, the, the dissection is done for you or there's muscle damage there. So uh, negotiating that is, is also a part of the exposure. All right, next scenario. Uh, similar patient, but this time the fractures are uh, significantly displaced three through six, uh, kind of mid posterior directly under the scapula. Sure. Yeah, they, these are, uh, this is a great case for um, using the 90 degree drill and driver once again. Um, we've gotten as high as the second rib and arguably uh, you may say, why plate the second rib? Um, but three through six subscapular, uh, that would be a, a lateral decubitus positioning, a posterior lateral thoracotomy, a self-retaining retractor with um, uh, a right angle, I like to use the book, Walter, uh, a right angle um, self-retainer underneath the scapular tip, elevating that. Um, uh, and, and the exposure um, is very nice in, in, in those sorts of cases. Um, I find there are challenges uh, as I'm picturing a highly displaced uh, fracture at the third rib. Um, sometimes it can be a challenge to get a, a reduction because the leverage is, is challenging. So um, I guess a, a technical uh, a tip I would have is, is start low uh, on those cases and often just getting the, you know, the sixth rib reduced and working to the fifth rib, working to the fourth rib, working to the third rib, the, the ribs will align the higher you go up mm, that's or at least it's easier. Sure. Yeah, but I, I will, the reduction I'll do from bottom up, the plating I'll do top down. Um, uh, and the reason for that is uh, uh, I like to rebuild the horizon uh, from far to near mm -hmm. so that you're not working over the plates. Um, I'm picturing a stoved in chest and reconstructing um, the, the contour of the chest wall. It's, it's going to be uh, con go from concave to convex and it, it becomes harder to work over uh, a convexity um, if you start plating at the sixth rib and work your way up to the third rib. So yeah. I, I would, I would say start high and work low after, after the reduction. Do you enter that subscapular plane through the triangle of auscultation? Yes. And do you, do you use that same uh, triangle then if you are approaching ribs more lateral? Um, yes, for the simple uh, uh, attempt at trying to uh, spare the muscles. Do you ever position the patients prone? I don't. Um, I, I've seen uh, uh, intraoperative photography from, from our meeting uh, and, and in the uh, some technical primers uh, in the literature. Um, I, I don't. I, I, I've been successful with uh, lateral decubitus positioning and um, supine positioning for uh, anterior fractures or uh, a central flail. I have not approached anyone in a, in a prone position. Now, okay, so this next scenario is one that um, I've done a couple recently and it's really been a bit of a struggle. Um, ribs, uh, say eight through 10, uh, kind of a posterior lateral inferior to the tip of the scapula, just far enough over that it's tough to get to them from the triangle and just posterior enough that it's hard to get to them from a lateral approach. I see. Um, well, again, I, I, I favor a, a lateral decubitus position, um, where I'm picturing these fractures, uh, we would airplane the bed um, so that uh, the patient strapped uh, and, and then airplane the bed so that um, both the surgeon and the first assistant and second assistant have a good view. Um, I think that uh, having um, a self-retaining retractor uh, fit for the patient's body habitus is going to be key. Um, and then a three-level uh, fixation, I would start, I think he said, uh, eight, nine, 10, 
um, I would put the, the incision right at the ninth rib. Um, another technical uh, uh, tip is um, uh, to try and become comfortable with use of the ultrasound uh, for incision planning. Um, mm. that, that's uh, something that um, I've used in, in cases of non-union or uh, fractures like, like what you're describing. I'll, I'll correlate, obviously, the, the, the imaging, uh, the CT scan with the, the patient and the positioning, but uh, having a real-time ultrasound just before the prep uh, and taking a look, and you're describing some, some displaced fractures, um, go along the fractures uh, uh, and, and chest wall and identify the fractures, mark them out with a, with a Sharpie. And um, that way you can kind of plan your incision there. Um, I would go at the kind of bottom edge of the ninth rib for, for what I'm picturing. And that way we're staring right at the ninth rib the eighth rib will be right in view and we'll be able to reach the 10th rib without, without difficulty, obviously dependent on the splaying of the ribs will, will determine how, how lengthy your incision has to be in your exposure. So I, I assume what you're describing is then you would split the muscles to get down to the chest wall. Yes. Exactly. And would you try to do this all through a single uh, location where you split it, split the muscle or would you split the muscle in multiple locations? I think splitting in one location has been, um, you're describing a, a three level, uh, exposure. I think splitting the muscle in one place and putting a self-retaining retractor in is, is, has been our practice here. And then moving on with other scenarios, it seems like, uh, lateral fractures are, uh, some of the easier to approach. Do you have any tips or tricks for those? Um, no, those are, uh, <laughs> Those are the fun ones uh, when when you don't really have to break a sweat to to fix them and uh, um, <laughs> you can you can fix things in a top down fashion not have to break out the special in instrumentation. Our scrub nurses enjoy those cases too because uh, they're much faster and um, uh, easier to to train in partners and um, uh, trainees as well because everyone has a has a better view of things. Um, so yeah, those, those are the fun ones. And then what about anterior fractures? Yeah, uh, in contrast to the, the prone positioning, we have positioned patients supine for, for these exposures if they're far anterior. Um, be mindful uh, of the uh, uh, costal cartilage. Um, look for a, a, a cartilaginous fracture. Um, we've seen patients that have been symptomatic from, from these, the junction of the, uh, bony interface and the cartilage, um, that, that used to be, um, really a head scratching area for me personally as to how, how to fix and how to counsel patients. Um, I get worried about, uh, hardware failure in that location, um, and it's a bit vexing to have a bit of a bucket handle uh, in that in that location. I get worried about the the screws cutting through uh, with time. Fortunately, we haven't seen much of that. And um, out of encouragement, with uh, you know talking with other members of uh, the society and and seeing their results, um, I've been more liberal about um, plating into cartilage. Really? Um, yeah. I, 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 um, Maybe Dr. Sarani's study will will demonstrate that that's a, a good idea or a bad idea. I, I don't know. Uh, jury's still out, but I think that's a technical um, concern in, in the anterior fractures. And uh, I know others have have plated to the sternum and crossed over the cartilage. Um, that too con concerns me uh, when you have a fixed point of uh, a point of fixation that is. Uh, not moving with the chest as much, and you get this kind of swinging action of, of the, the plate. Um, but again, I'm not sure if that's a technical contraindication or not. Time will tell. Yeah. Now, in all of these scenarios, um, how do you position the arm? So we use uh, an over arm board. 
uh, for a lateral decubitus position. So um, uh, we use an ax roll for the downside, uh, the decubitus side, and a, a well-padded um, overarm board uh, for the lateral decubitus. In an anterior um, a set of fractures or a supine position, uh, we'll position the, the patient in a taxi hailing uh, position. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, how we do it here is have a, a arm bar and uh, wrap the arm in a in a um, soft soft uh, blanket and then suspend that from the arm bar with tape. Okay. Well, I think that's a really um, excellent overview of some of the different ways to approach uh, approach the rib fractures. Thanks, uh, Matt. Um, have you done much in the way of uh, prone positioning? Uh, you know, at the, at our institution, we'll position prone for some of the really posterior ones, um, those ones under the paraspinous muscles. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if it ever helps us, but <laughs> it's what we do. And and do you do a uh, standard thoracotomy exposure, or do you do a um, uh, an incision that parallels the spine? Uh, for the really posterior ones, we do. Uh, if it's high enough that we think we can get to it through the triangle of auscultation, we do kind of a mini thoracotomy incision over the triangle of auscultation. Okay. Uh, if we're going to have to approach it separately from that, then we'd do something parallel to the spine. Okay. And have you experienced um, individuals with the uh, uh, parallel incision uh, who have had um, uh, an anesthetized chest wall? Um, we've had a good number of people who have complained of an anesthetized chest wall, although I can't say I've ever correlated it to the specific incision type. Is that something that you, you've seen? I, I have, and I, I, I think it's beyond the chest wall injury and the intercostal, uh, nerve damage from the, the index injury. Um, so I, I shy away from the, the, uh, quote unquote parallel incision. I, I, and I, I'm not one that, um, again, has found a, a strong indication for a, a prone position. That's really interesting. And honestly, something I haven't uh, thought about because we have had a fair number of people come back and um, complain of some at least transient uh, anesthetism or uh, paresthesias to their chest wall. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I, I think, uh, again, it's, it's hard for me to say with certainty, but, but um, I know that uh, uh, it seems as though, uh, the kind of standard uh, uh, curvilinear or sigmoid-shaped uh, thoracotomy has worked well, um, and, and uh, there hasn't been a lot of um, associated neuropathic discomfort from the exposure. Um, yeah. The best, best I can tell. Yeah, that's a really good point. Interesting. Well, thank you for going through those. Uh, I think that's a, a great overview of the technical approaches to some common chest wall injury scenarios. What are some closing remarks you would want to leave people with regarding operative approaches? Uh, and then going back to our earlier discussion about starting a program managing complex chest wall injuries. Well, I think uh, I'm a pretty, pretty base bones uh, sort of uh, <laughs> uh, technical guy. I mean, I, I, I definitely try and um, apply the uh, KISS principle of keeping it very simple and uh, try not to make the operation too, too complex, in other words. And um, uh, I, I, as far as uh, starting a program, um, I guess the only other uh, advice that I would have for, the, uh, for that surgeon is to have tough skin and uh, <laughs> uh, remain, remain true to uh, what got you there. Um, because you will help patients, you will, and um, it, it, it's it's uh, somebody has to do it. Um, so uh, ha have the tough skin, um, be conservative early on, um, and then you can branch out. But uh, it, it's a practice that uh, I think has a place in every trauma. Yeah. Were you able to utilize any of your contacts or support from the Chest Wall Injury Society to help building the practice? 
well, the, the um, society was, um, I think, maybe uh, not even a gleam in uh, Dr. White's eye at, at that point. So, um, no, and I, I would love to be a resource at this point uh, for, for that individual. That's, that's the beauty of the society is I think there is a, uh, it was very eye-opening to um, sit at the inaugural meeting and, and have uh, so many individuals have, have uh, the same struggles, the same issues, uh, same questions. Um, so uh, this, this society has been great for um, saying, really, you're not alone. And um, the, the young surgeon who's coming out of uh, fellowship like yourself that uh, is, is um, looking to start that practice, we should be, um, we should be a resource for the, those individuals. Um, I, 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 w- I wish we had, I wish I had um, the body of knowledge, the, uh, the individuals with um, such an approachable uh, mindset and uh, uh, wealth of experience. Um, this is an incredible uh, group of individuals that um, can help the, the young, um, middle-aged or, or older surgeon who wants to start this practice. Um, as, as you are uh, knowledgeable about now, I mean, I think uh, sitting at the meeting, everyone uh, expresses the same um, frustrations and, and works to, to uh, solve them. And, and uh, that, that's the beauty of this, this group is um, you're not alone. <laughs> yeah. So everyone, uh, I think, has a similar experience. And um, where you are on the spectrum is really contingent on your group and, and uh, how long you've been in practice. So uh, there, there is going to be someone who has had that experience and reaching out. I don't think anyone in the society um, uh, would cast you aside. So yeah, I, yeah that's a tremendous but, resource. As a young surgeon, I can already uh, echo what you have to say about how approachable the group is and what a, what a great resource it is. When I think about approaching some difficult cases, the fact that I could call or text or contact these people is uh, just tremendously reassuring. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Brian, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I really appreciate this. I think it was a great, great review of starting a program and uh, on a more basic level about just uh, getting these cases done well and smoothly. Yeah. Thanks, Matt, for uh, uh, the insightful questions. It's uh, been fun, fun uh, looking back a decade. (laughs) Thank you for joining us for this episode of Ribcast. Special thanks to our guest, Dr. Brian Kim, for sharing his time and experience with us. Thanks also to the Education Committee of the Chestwall Injury Society. Thanks to Sarah Ann Whitbeck and Drs. Tom White and Dave Morris for their help planning and producing this episode. The music for this episode was provided by the band Ask Again.